What lessons can we draw from the war on terror? Can terrorism be addressed by military means alone? And how should we adapt to the changing face of modern warfare? In the early years after 9-11, established models for fighting so-called small wars proved woefully ineffective against insurgencies in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan. A new approach was clearly necessary. David Kilcullen was a key architect of one of those new approaches. He's one of the world's most influential experts on counterinsurgency and modern warfare who helped with the West's revamped military strategy in those years. His book, The Accidental Guerrilla, provided groundbreaking insights into the war on terror. He surveyed war as it was actually fought, arguing that neither counterterrorism nor traditional counterinsurgency was the appropriate framework to fight the enemy that we faced. Welcome to Afterwards. This series focuses on six books that shaped Hearst over its 50 years as an independent non-fiction publisher. I'm Shashank Joshi, defence editor at The Economist, and for the last episode of season one, I'm talking to Dave Kilcullen, one of the world's most influential experts on counterinsurgency and modern warfare. Hi, Dave. Hey, how are you? Thanks very much for joining us. Dave's book, The Accidental Guerrilla, was a Washington Post bestseller and a landmark book in the field of war studies, transforming the theory and practice of counterinsurgency. Colouring his account with gripping battlefield experience, Dave's book changed the way we think about war. Dave, I have my well-thumbed copy here that I bought. Yes, it is very impressively well-thumbed. It's got little uh, (laughs) highlighted bits in it. It's Uh got pencil markings with little tick marks. Shows you I I did read it. It was well-loved. And I bought this... 10 years ago when I was at graduate school studying international relations. So it was a key part of how I thought about warfare as I was Mm. learning this in the academy. I'm flattered. But for those who may not have read it, let's just begin by going back to the beginning and asking, what is an accidental guerrilla? So my argument in the book is that we have tended, or in the war on terrorism at the time, we tended to conflate two very different kinds of adversaries. One, this sort of al-Qaeda global terrorist group who you might call a counter-globalist, right? People who weren't opposed to globalization. They were opposed to our version of globalization and they had a particularly global strategy in mind and a global approach, but it was a very different one from ours. And then the other people we dealt with were anti-globalists, people who were like fighting us primarily because we were in their backyard. And the point that I make in the book is that the vast majority of people that we were actually fighting at the height of the war on terrorism were what I called accidental guerrillas, people who were only fighting us because we were in their country, people in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, in the Horn of Africa would never have attacked the West if we hadn't come into their countries with a very large military force to chase completely other guys, right? These very small cell groups of counter-global but equally globalized insurgents. That's the the idea of an accidental guerrilla is someone who fights us because we're in his face, not because he would necessarily hate us. And that suggests a completely different way of going about what we used to call the war on terrorism than we had at the time. So let's just dive into the backstory to the book for a minute as Mm -hmm. well. This is published in 2009. 
where were we in the war on terror when you were writing this? What was the state of that conflict at the time? So my background was in political science, and I did my PhD in political anthropology in the 1990s. And one of the things that you learn when you do ethnography or you work with local people in remote areas is to take good verbatim notes, you know. So by 2007, 2008, I had about a decade's worth of pretty detailed observations, mostly first-person commentary by people that we were engaging with in places like Indonesia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, And we, we being the, you were an Australian military officer. I was Australian so military. So that was your professional background, but you were a particularly cerebral Australian <laughs> military officer. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd be considered particularly cerebral, but I, yeah, I was a military Not officer. Not many for, officers have a decade worth of field notes. Well, to, to you'd be surprised, with. actually. Yeah, I was Australian military for 22 years or so. Then I worked for the Australian government as a civilian, and I ended up working in the U.S. government in the Counterterrorism Bureau of the State Department serving in Iraq. And I was actually in Iraq when Michael Dwyer, who runs Hearst, reached out to me and said, hey, would you be interested in writing a book about your experiences and what you're seeing in the war on terrorism? So that's where, how it came about. And where were the places you had been? What were the local conflicts that you had been observing before you ended up in the eye of the storm, in the, sort yeah, of, in the central in campaigns of the war on terror. I mean, yeah. you, you were in some sort of what we would see as more peripheral theatres, weren't you? Yeah, from, classic. From the point of your Western attention. Classic small wars. Actually, the first, the first major experience that I had that was relevant to the book was in Indonesia. So I had been doing my PhD on the Indonesian experience of guerrilla warfare and counterinsurgency. And I was working in West Java in the middle of the 1990s, and I, I was in a pretty remote area, an area which in the 1950s had been the scene of a pretty classic Islamic state-style terrorism and insurgency campaign by a group called Darul Islam. And I was doing field research with people who'd been affected by the conflict. And I realized about halfway through my field research that what I had been treating as a historical campaign that occurred in the past was actually very much alive and well, that there was a real active jihadist element in Indonesia. And not only an Indonesian group, but a, an Arab group, Yemenis, Saudis, and others. That made me realize, well, hang on, all this stuff which we think we understand from the 1950s and 1960s, A, it's not history, it's actually real and live, and B, it's a little more complicated than just a local question or a global question, it's actually mixed. So looking back to the 1950s and 1960s, there was a lot of thinking done from that period of imperial policing leading into the Vietnam campaigns about a field that became known as counterinsurgency, yeah. the idea of the insurgents swimming like a fish in water, the mm -hmm. idea of insurgents weeding themselves into a population. And we saw this in the Middle East. We saw this in Southeast Asia. We saw this in Africa, in British campaigns, American campaigns, French campaigns. What was the prevailing idea of counterinsurgency that was bequeathed to us from that era? And what, from your experience, did you think needed amendment? Yeah. So let me uh, make a distinction, and it's hard to do this on a podcast, but between capital C 
counterinsurgency, right? And little c countering insurgencies. So countering insurgencies in a generic sense is probably the oldest form of conflict on the planet. And you can look back to the ancient Romans areas that are today Afghanistan and southern China, and there's a whole series of historical approaches to countering rebels, which right up until the late 19th century basically involved just killing everybody, right, or putting some significant degree of violence on a local population to crush the desire for insurgency. Plowing salt into the fields, as the Romans did, uh, killing a certain number of people in the community and so on. In the 1950s, after the Second World War, a new school of counterinsurgency began to emerge, partly informed by Maoist ideas of people's war, which you just referred to about the fish in the swimming in the sea, but also particularly by the fact that it was now a nuclear superpower confrontation. And so people had to evolve new ways of countering rebels who weren't just local rebel groups, but might actually back, be backed by a global communist or Cuban or China, whatever group. And as a consequence, a whole new series of ideas came about that mainly involved separating the insurgent from the population, keeping them separate, and then addressing the underlying grievances that were driving the population to support the insurgent. And many of those had to do with sort of modernization theory, you know, as it existed in the 50s. And, and, this, and this is sort of in Vietnam, having villages cordoned off, yeah. focusing on the idea that if you sort of developed these places, they would have less need to rely on insurgents, yeah, that so sort of thing. Cordoning villages off is actually an extraordinarily old technique. The British invented the term concentration camp during the Boer War precisely to separate the population from the insurgent, but they didn't invent the concept. I mean, that was thousands of years old. The difference by the 1960s was that people actually said, we're not just going to lock up thousands of people. We're going to try to figure out what it is that's making them support the insurgency and change that. Once you started to apply that in Iraq and Afghanistan, a number of problems emerged and it became pretty clear to me anyway that that model wasn't going to work in the war on terrorism. So what were those problems? What became apparent? Well, I think two big ones. One, this issue of globalization that we've already touched on, which meant that ideas and techniques and grievances and so on would bounce around among groups to the point where you might be successfully addressing the local drivers of conflict in a given area, but you're not going to stop the conflict if it's continually being fed and manipulated by another global insurgency, right? So that the traditional insurgency was a very localized phenomenon. What we were dealing with by the time of Iraq and Afghanistan was a group that operated on a global scale. So, so the idea here could be that sort of Vietnamese rebels against the French they weren't being fueled and fed by these global networks. But by the time you're looking at Fallujah, that is plugged into a kind of yeah. global set of ideas. Now, an argument that people made against that point of view at the time, and I think it's fair, is that, well, but of course the Vietnamese were plugged into a global set of ideas, i.e. communism. And if you look at writings about Southeast Asian insurgency in the 1950s and 1960s, they do write about how there's this global network of people supporting them. What we know now, having studied these conflicts in great detail since and having spoken to people after they ended, was that the role of communism in, say, insurgency in Vietnam or Malaya was significant, but it wasn't the whole story. And there were actually very strong 
local variations and local drivers that made a big difference. In this case, though, you know, traditionally you would isolate an area and conduct a counterinsurgency in that area. On a global scale, you can't do that. You're not able to just isolate populations completely from the outside world, nor probably in a modern world would we consider that to be an appropriate thing to do anyway. I'm always making the point that we need to think about this in a, in a different way. And what was the other big difference? So the other big difference was that the way that we had responded to the war on terrorism was actually driving most of these conflicts. So in the case of Iraq, for example, by the time I began writing the book in 2008, we had lost about 4,000 people in Iraq. About 100,000 Iraqis had been killed or injured and got much worse from there. The whole country had been turned upside down. But this wasn't a classic insurgency. It was something much closer to Second World War, French resistance against German occupation. We were walking around scratching our heads trying to figure out why these people are fighting us and what social and economic things we need to do to change their calculus. Well, it was pretty damn obvious. They were fighting us because we just turned up in their country with 150,000 occupation troops, right? I mean, you know, so it was a quite a different dynamic. And this is true in Pakistan, right, where the tribes in the tribal areas basically just wanted to be left alone in 2002. And then a few al-Qaeda guys turned up. So the U.S., talked the Pakistani government into invading the Tira Valley in 2002, and that generated what later became the Pakistani Taliban. Conversely, take Indonesia. We never invaded Indonesia. We worked really closely with the Indonesian government. We took a law enforcement and intelligence and political approach, and we never had the kind of uprisings that we had elsewhere. In fact, the Indonesian government did a very good job in dealing with its own internal threat. So arguably... The reason people were fighting in the 1950s and 1960s, you know, a global ideology and a sense of deprivation and grievance, probably at some level still existed in the war on terrorism. But the big driver was us, us turning up and invading people's countries in the name of suppressing terrorism. So the skeptic says here, okay, but of course you're writing about the time or just after the surge – which historically we view as a success, the surge of US forces into Iraq, particularly into the Sunni Triangle, into Sunni-dominated areas that Mm -hmm. had been the the heartland of al-Qaeda in Iraq Mm -hmm. that then, of course, mutated through various guises into Islamic State. Mm -hmm. And it appeared that actually an infusion of Western troops protecting Sunni communities but also helping them rise up against al-Qaeda seemed to do some good. Do those examples fit with your model? Well, I think that that way of describing it, and I I know you know better than than how you're describing it, that's not what actually happened, right? And so the surge was billed as a great success at the time. And in terms of its actual goal, which was to reduce violence in order to create space for a political solution, it absolutely was a success. I mean, we got a 96% reduction of violence in Iraq in a six-month period, which is basically unheard of. However, of course, having created that space for a political solution, that solution never happened. And as a consequence, it slid back into conflict. Uh, And in fact, we saw increasing sectarianism by the Iraqi government in the years after the lull in violence. But in fact, what happened on the ground was that there were three factors. There was the surge itself, that is the extra troops, which was very important. 
primarily because it gave us enough troops to be out on the ground uh, working with the population and protecting them where they slept. The second key factor was the new doctrine of counterinsurgency, which we had worked on over the preceding few years, and that actually gave the troops a playbook for how to work with people and recognize that we're not actually here to try and track down 20 bad guys in a village. We're here to work with the village to keep it safe, and the bad guys will naturally come out of the woodwork if we do that, right? But neither of those two things were decisive. The thing that was decisive was what the Iraqis called the Sahwa, the awakening, which was when the Iraqi tribes turned against al-Qaeda and utterly devastated al-Qaeda in about a a two-month period. The thing to note about that is it wasn't the first time the tribes had tried to raise up against Mm. al-Qaeda. It was the fifth time. And the preceding four times, they'd always been slaughtered, usually with Americans and other coalition troops just standing by and not doing anything because we didn't regard it as part of the, the problem set. And in this case, what happened was being out on the ground, working with the community, giving them a feeling of safety and having enough troops due to the surge to protect them allowed them to successfully rise up against al-Qaeda and push them out. So that was actually the decisive factor in Iraq. It was that we stopped attacking the population and started working with the population, allowing them to then push out this foreign element, right, mostly Syrians or urban population or people from Abu Musab al-Zakawi who was Jordanian but had lived in Afghanistan right up to the beginning of the war. Those sort of foreign elements, they pushed them out. So we, we learn these lessons after the surge. We learn the importance of partnership with the local population, working with them and the ways to do this more sensitively. How much of that is applied then to Afghanistan in the years afterwards, which particularly with the election of Barack Obama, attention shifted to what was portrayed in the Obama administration as the good war, yeah. one that could be won. There was a strong and very vigorous debate in the administration in, in 2009, 2010, about how to proceed. How much of, the, how much of this was, was knowledge was transferred? A lot, although... Um, and what was your involvement in it? So I came back from Iraq and I had been working for the Australian government embedded in the US State Department. And I was asked to join the US State Department as an advisor in the office of the counselor, which is part of the Secretary of State's personal office on counterinsurgency, but primarily on Afghanistan. And I worked for a guy called Elliot Cohen, who's one of the most brilliant strategic thinkers the US has ever produced. And Elliot asked me to take a really close look at Afghanistan, think about what was going on over there by comparison to Iraq, and understand you know, what we might be able to apply over there as part of the, the last year of the Bush administration. So this is now 2008, right? And by the handover to the Obama people at the end of 2008, we had built what you might call a hit list of things we needed to do to fix what was going on in Afghanistan. It didn't really involve templating things from Iraq and copying them. It mostly involved taking the same principles and thinking about how they might apply in Afghanistan. The new administration came in with an argument that it it was time to focus on Afghanistan, that Iraq was the wrong war, that we shouldn't have gone there in the first place, all of which I would agree with. And then this idea of a surge in Afghanistan came about. And I was asked to go over and assist as a consultant to one of the US scientific agencies in trying to understand what was going on in the war and advise ISAF, the 
International Security Assistance Force. The problem with copying things from Iraq to Afghanistan, I think, was twofold. One was that it was a completely different society. And things that we did with tribes in Iraq just wouldn't work with a tribe in Afghanistan because mm -hmm. the term tribe doesn't actually mean anything, right? It's a Western construct that we put on local social groupings. And they're very, very different in Iraq from Afghanistan. And so the society itself was entirely different. Now, the relevant difference is that Iraq, people had been under a very penetrative dictatorship for nearly 40 years. So they expected us to protect them. In Afghanistan, people were absolutely independent. So things that would reassure an Iraqi population, like putting a company of infantry in their village, scared the crap out of Afghans and actually pissed them off. And we ended up with the opposite effect from what we were looking for. So give me some examples of things that were on your hit list. And most importantly, did they work? Yeah, so, well, I can answer the second question first, which is no. <laughs> um, one should be cautious with the term hit list. I, I mean, I'm, I don't mean... I know you don't mean a literal kill list. Yeah, yeah. I mean a list of things we needed to do. So the way that I interpreted the war in... Afghanistan, and I think a lot of people that were there at the time with me as well saw it the same way, was that there was a cycle of corruption on the part of the Afghan government and Afghan elites, driving abuse of the local population, which then created a reaction, you know, a counteraction against that abuse and gave space to an insurgency. And the existence of the insurgency brought hundreds of millions of dollars of cash and lots of foreign support to Afghanistan, which then drove the corruption and made the cycle go around again. One of the studies we did at the time, a sort of populist view of Afghanistan was that one of the biggest sources of funding for the Taliban was the drug economy. We ran the numbers. We actually looked at where are they getting their money from and what's driving their ability to keep operating. And we actually found when we did that study that the biggest source of income for the Taliban was actually us, right? It was foreign assistance, money coming in, which they could siphon from projects or steal directly or access through contractors that were getting paid to do things that never actually got done, you know, and that would then feed their ability to operate. So it was quite a different set of circumstances from Iraq. It's astounding that we took so long to recognize where the Taliban were coming from. One of my jobs when I worked in Afghanistan for General Stanley McChrystal, who was the head of ISAF at the time, was to talk to people that were aligned with the Taliban and try to understand, you know, where they were coming from. And I had conversations in 2009 with people close to the Taliban leadership that are directly related to the conversations that have been happening this year, you know, 11 years later, about resolving the conflict. And they've had a very, very consistent position for at least the decade and a bit that I've been involved in the conflict, which hasn't really changed very much. You know, we're not going to be a threat to any other country. We don't support global terrorism. We will undertake to guarantee that global terrorists don't operate from our territory, but Western troops have to leave. We have to be allowed a role in governing Pashtun majority parts of Afghanistan we can talk about foreign assistance later. You know, that's been their position pretty much consistently ever since I first began talking to them in 2009. So if you go to Washington today and look at defense debates now, for 20 years, the focus has been on 
the accidental guerrilla in different parts of the world right. and these sorts of small wars of different stripes. What we saw in the national defence strategy published by the Trump administration, introduced when James Mattis was Secretary of Defence, but with broad buy-in, I think, mm -hmm. from lots of the political military establishment, both Democratic and Republican in the United States, was that the US had essentially frittered away too much money and attention on some of these campaigns, whilst traditional peer adversaries, Russia, but most prominently China, had rearmed modernized and prepared for very different sorts of conflicts. Mm -hmm. The national defense strategy effectively says the U.S.'s focus going forward should be what, what they call great power competition. In other words, preparing to compete with and fight big state adversaries, not necessarily in open conventional warfare in many types of different campaigns, mm. but if need be in open conflict. Mm -hmm. How do you think the legacy of these smaller wars overlaps with this preparation for bigger ones. Are we just going to shove the last 20 years aside and ignore it? Or are these kind of going to overlap? Are we going to be looking at China at the same time as we still face these Islamic State vilayats and many other insurgent groups like Boko Haram and, and yeah. different yeah, yeah. ones in other parts of the world? So if I may very indelicately plug the book that I just published, it's called The Dragons and the Snakes. And it's about that actual question. So the quote that I'm using to frame the title of the book is from James Woolsey, who was uh, President Clinton's CIA director. And at the end of the Cold War in February 1993, so just after the Gulf War, he was asked, how do you see the threat environment going forward? And he said, we've slain a large dragon, talking about the Soviet Union, but now we find ourselves in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes. And in many ways, the dragon was easier to keep track of. And what I argue in this book is that we spent 20 years from 1993 until 2013 focusing on snakes, weak states, failing states like Afghanistan and non-state actors like terrorists. That made sense in the 1990s when China was recovering from the deep disruption of the Tiananmen Square uprisings and still recovering from Mao's version of, of communism. And Russia was massively in eclipse in the 1990s. So it sort of made sense. After 2003, we got so heavily bogged down in dealing with terrorists in Iraq and Afghanistan and globally that we sort of narrowed our field of vision to just one snake, you know, terrorism. And while that was happening, two really important things happened. One, the dragons recovered. So China began to become a really major player in Europe and Latin America and Africa economically. It created a blue water navy for the first time since the mid-15th century. It became a maritime power. It invented an entire new category of missile systems, the anti-ship ballistic missile that's capable of knocking out a carrier battle group on the move at sea, something that had never existed before. Simultaneously, the Russians began to copy and evolve new techniques from their adversaries, but also to reinvigorate defense establishment and think about new ways to operate in the environment. And they were able to do that because we were so distracted by these problems of our own creation, right? The very long dragging on occupations of, of Iraq and Afghanistan. From 2013 onward, we recognize that the dragons are back, but the dragons have learned to fight like snakes. So we're dealing with 
evolved versions of the Chinese and the Russian approach that look quite different from traditional Cold War era great power competition. But then the other big thing that's happened is this massive explosion of technology, connectivity, democratization of lethal capabilities so that as a non-state actor, you can now have levels of lethality, which you used to have to be a nation state in order to achieve. So it's almost as if we are dealing with both dragons and snakes at the same time and in many of the same places. So we can't just go back to a Cold War model and we can't just double down on what we've been doing in the war on terrorism. We actually need a new approach to both. And I think that's partly where the Trump administration strategy is going. But it's also, I think, where most people are recognizing, including the British and the Australians and others, that we need to focus in terms of capability development for the military. Now, to end every episode of this series, we're asking our guests about the one book that shaped them. So, Dave, what would that be for you? Can I say two? I'll, I'll allow two, <laughs> yes. So the, one of the books I first read at about the age of eight was a book by William R. Geddes called Nine Dyak Nights. Geddes was a British school social anthropologist. He lived in northern Sarawak in Borneo for a number of years in the early 1950s. And this is an ethnographic study of a particular tribe. And I say tribe in a generic sense, a particular group of Dyaks, land Dyaks, a group sometimes called headhunters in northern Borneo. And the book is framed around a story that a local Dyak leader told him, and their story took nine nights to tell. So each chapter of the book is one night of the story, and he uses that to explore certain aspects of that society that he was living with. It's an absolute classic of anthropology. The other one is related, and that's Redmond O'Hanlon's book, Into the Heart of Borneo, where Redmond O'Hanlon basically gets in a dugout canoe and paddles into the middle of Borneo with one companion and a, a bunch of guys actually from the same general population group that Geddes is looking at in the 50s. And the thing that I love about O'Hanlon's book is it is actually jam-packed with really serious academic points and references to the, you know, the great naturalists of the 19th century and spiritual philosophy and all that stuff. But he sort of hides it like vegetables in the lasagna and he sticks it in the, in the narrative in a way that by the time you get to the end of the book, you've actually learned a lot without noticing it. And in the books that I write, I've really tried to emulate those two really important books for me to say, is this being too academic? Is there a way to make the same point with an anecdote from and use the words of a local person rather than an academic? You know, is there a way to put this into a nonfiction book in such a way that it retains the interest of someone who's reading it in a narrative way? So those two books for me, you know, books that I read as a young man or as a child, I don't think I've come close to emulating them, but I've always tried to do that. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time and for a very stimulating conversation. And we all look forward to reading The Dragons and the Snakes. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough for Hearst Publishers. Thank you to Dave Kilcullen for taking part in this episode. I'm Shashank Joshi. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Afterwards podcast. 
If you like what you heard, we have a special discount code for any listeners wanting to order a Hearst book. Just visit hearstpublishers.com and use the code AFTERWORDS25. That's AFTERWORDS25 and you can get a discount code on any book Hearst publishes.